There are things that I haven't touched upon that we are particularly interested in. Please feel free. Ivo, I think, mentioned some of the places where I've worked more uh, thoroughly, so if you want to talk about this in particular, feel free. Um, I want to start with uh, some, so some ideas, thoughts about what we've seen in the field and where we are today. And starting with international criminal justice, which has been what I've been focusing on more um, than, than others. If you look at between 1993 and 2009, we basically have an international tribunal or mixed hybrid court created every other year. It's an incredible pace. You have, you know, 93 is Yugoslavia, 94 is Rwanda, 98 is the ICC. Between 2000 and 2003, we have Sierra Leone, Kosovo, East Timor. 2004, the Bosnia War Crimes Chamber. 2006, Cambodia. 2009, Lebanon. It's very regular. And then it stopped. It was the longest period ever without any new court created. Recently, we had a new court created for Kosovo, the third, actually, the third sort of international attempt to deal with uh, crimes there. Um, and we also have a court that is now being beginning to work in Central African Republic. But I don't think it changes the whole picture. These two courts are rather weak. Their future is pretty uncertain. And so I think it still is clear to me that um, we've seen a serious decline in uh, international criminal courts or hybrid courts uh, developing. Even the hybrid model to me has lost a lot of its appeal. I know that some scholars have tried recently to, because of Kosovo and Central African Republic, they would say that the hybrid model is back, uh, back in fashion. I don't think it's true. I think these two examples do not change the, the global pictures. The picture. I think the hybrid model has also showed a lot of shortcomings, uh, and everybody knows about them. Like in 12 years, if you take the, the Cambodia court, which is one of the most recent ones, it's, it has tried three individuals in 12 years for the cost of $3,050 million. I think that explains a lot of what the crisis is about. Um, it has also largely confirmed the insignificant impact of these kind of courts on national uh, judiciary, which has been a major claim of the hybrid model. It's not the case in Cambodia, not the case in Sierra Leone. So that has also weakened the model. And of course, we have perhaps the most troubling example, which is the Lebanon court, which has been going on for, for more than if you count the investigation phase, it's about 13 years with not a single accused in the dock and an extremely high price. So, uh, so you can see that we've, we've gone through a gradual degradation of uh, the judicial process at the international level. And, and this, of course, has affected their credibility and also their, uh, their claims. Many of their claims are, are affected by such um, problematic results. Just take, keep in mind also, uh, I think it's important to, uh, to, put it, to put the perspective. When the first contemporary courts were created, the Yugoslav court and then the Rwanda court, 
And we got to understand that one, they, they would only deal with a few dozens cases. In the case of the Yugoslavia court, I think it's 113 individuals have been tried over more than 20 years, and it's 75 at the Rwanda tribunal. It was shocking when it was discovered that it would be so small. It was expected to be much bigger. Today, these are huge numbers at the international level. The trend, the, the, the reality of all contemporary international models, or almost all of them, is that we are down to about five indiv individuals being tried. Uh, Cambodia is three, Lebanon is five in absentia, um, and for each situation that the International Criminal Court is dealing with, it's between one and five individuals. If you take every uh, Uganda, uh, Sudan, or every situation that the ICC is taking care of, <coughs> they're never going to uh, target more than five individuals. You see the, the incredible uh, trend that it has taken, and of course that has um, a very uh, huge impact on both the credibility of the process and the impact that such courts can possibly have. Um, some, of, some people actually have talked about a sort of deglobalization uh, process that we, we've been witnessing. So there would be a, a renationalization of international justice. We can see it that way, although I think it's, I think it's far more uh, uh, complex than that. But if you look at it this way, uh, maybe there are two factors that could explain this, this uh, dynamics. One comes from the outside. Um, when you think about the future of international criminal justice, of, uh, or let's say, when you think about the future of international relations and world politics, it generally, the same will apply to international justice. So war crimes prosecutions tend to mirror the state of the world balance of power because it's at the heart of it. So if we agree that world politics today have become particularly chaotic and unpredictable, the same goes to international criminal justice. Basically, these war crimes tribunals have developed during a window of opportunity that was the, the end of the Cold War between 1991 and then 9-11 and most importantly the Iraq War put an end to this window and so it was quite an exceptional environment in which they could develop. Um, it was also the product of Western liberal democracies essentially and as you know they have, uh, the model is pretty much on the retreat at the global stage. So courts have to deal with this environment that is much uh, less supportive than it used to be. Of course, major powers today like China and, and, uh, and Russia are now more resolute in their opposition or to, to this uh, dominant model. It's clear that the Trump presidency is accelerating the decline of America's influence and America has been a driving force behind all these courts, and the, what we, until at least recently, saw as emerging democratic powers, such as Brazil or South Africa or India, they've all been historically pretty lukewarm about international criminal uh, justice. 
So, so the, the context is not favorable. Uh, the global support for it is, is, uh, is diminishing and it affects the court. But the second factor, and I've, I think I've already given a few facts that, that illustrate that, comes from within. Part of the decline of international criminal justice, I think, is very much due to its own degrading uh, efficiency, which is also the way these courts have been functioning, and that was not because of external factors, but because of the way they developed into heavily bureaucratic institutions, which might have uh, lost to a good extent their, their reason, uh, their raison d'être, as we say in, in French or not, so in English. I think. Um, so, so I think that's important to keep that in mind. Uh, there's a general talk, especially of course from the courts and from major NGOs supporting the courts that constantly focus on the external factors. Uh, I think the, the factors from within are just equally uh, important. So today we have the ICC that is in a profound crisis, just again, Facts are, are always a bit uh, telling. In 16 years, it has completed five trials, including a guilty plea. Uh, that's, that's an incredibly low level of, uh, of production. And of course, it affects also its, its capacity to, uh, to act and to be credible. We I think everybody still feels that there is a need to have the ICC, but it's not sometimes obvious what for. Um, but the ICC is very, uh, I think, shows how, what I was saying, how symbolism has become a characteristic of the evolution of international tribunals. And we've come to a point where it's symbolic to the extreme, as I just said. So where could it go? Two years ago, the prosecutor of the ICC released its, uh, her policy strategy uh, paper, as you, as you know. And it was interesting to see what she said she would focus on, which was quite creative to, uh, to some extent, and it included uh, human trafficking, arms trafficking, environmental crimes, and in, that included massive land grabs uh, that led to you know, mass evictions. That's the strategy she exposed. And to some extent, it was a bit like the ICC was saying, we can't solve conflicts. We've shown that we were pretty uh, una un unable to do it. We can't repair societies. But we can be a global eco-chamber on issues that affect millions, including in time of peace. Because such, some of these crimes that she listed as her priorities would now be happening in societies at peace as opposed to the classic uh, scenario of uh, conflict situations. I thought that was an interesting way of understanding, or at least if you interpret the new strategy as, as such a, a message, I thought it was interesting to say, why not? Should, should the ICC be that sort of eco-chamber? And that's it. That's, that's what it can do. It can bring attention to a number of 
mass violations that would not get so much attention if it wasn't addressed by the prominent uh, court that the ICC remains. It's a, bit, um, it's a bit challenging, it could be risky, but maybe it would give the ICC a new dimension and a new relevance that it doesn't have uh, based on its own uh, trial efficiency. So here we would imagine the ICC as a platform, and we also would, uh, it would also be more triggered by a victim's interest as opposed to state's interest, which has been the case so far. Because if you look at these kind of, of crimes that she listed as her priorities, they are much more victims-driven, in my view, than state-driven, as we've seen so far. That, I think, was also a bit promising, because that's much more in line with what we are seeing, and I'm going to talk about it a bit later to cheer you up after saying such um, depressing kind of statements. Um, the problem is, and that's a bit depressing too, is that it's two years now that the prosecutor has published this paper and there has been no follow-up whatsoever on these promises. So the ICC has again, it seems that they understood what could be done to be more relevant, but they're still unable to really act. So we're still dealing with a bureaucracy that doesn't seem to uh, to make the moves even though they seem to understand what they can do, what they should do. Okay, so now let's, let's cheer up. Let's see what's, what's happening that is interesting, that is a bit exciting and, and creative. Sticking to criminal justice for the time being. Of course, what we're seeing now that is, uh, that is the, the field is still very active. Despite of what I just said, the field of war crimes justice is very active, but it takes place at the domestic level. So this is where the, the, the probably the most creative um, initiatives are taking place. Um, so not only war crime trials keep taking place at the national level, they also remain a compulsory provision in any peace deal at this at this point. So that's, that shows how uh, relevant the, the issue is. A good and fascinating example, of course, today is Colombia, which for some of you probably, because if, you, if I judge by the articles we received last year from you guys, Colombia was prominent. I imagine it's going to remain prominent because it's probably the most fascinating traditional justice process ever being the only comprehensive one that has ever been uh, designed and, and implemented. Um, so that's a good example on how it, it's, it's happening at the, at the national level. We've also seen an increase of extradition cases of war crime suspects, for instance, from Western countries to the former Yugoslavia or Rwanda. Things that were a bit problematic a few years ago are now regular. We don't even we don't even, they don't even make news. Uh, and I think also from Europe to Latin America, Francesca can confirm, we've, we've seen some of them. Um, but of course, perhaps what has been particularly, and still is particularly interesting, is the development of universal jurisdiction. 
there are more and more trials happening uh, in a number of European countries in particular. And, uh, and in fact, today, if you look at Syria, which is, of course, a, a major concern in terms of mass violence, mass crime, the only hope, concrete hope there is today is through universal jurisdiction trials in some uh, European countries. I think there's also been an increase of uh, bottom-up strategies, victim-based initiatives, if you compare to how it used to work uh, in uh, 10 years ago or, or 20 years ago. And, and they are using universal jurisdiction to force national systems to open cases. Historically, to me, perhaps the most the, the, the key moment was the Haber trial in Senegal. So the former dictator of Chad was tried by Senegalese, Senegalese court uh, in 2015-2016, and that became a model. Today, the Haber trial is a model for a number of NGOs and victim groups on how you can actually bring a serious case uh, by uh, bottom-up, basically, strategy. So, in the Haber trial, victims were at the center of the process from, from the beginning to end. Uh, and the model also worked as a partnership between a local or local groups, local NGOs, and an international one, in that case, Human Rights Watch. And it's this partnership that sort of uh, proved to be pretty efficient. Of course, you need luck. And they got some luck at some point. But they got luck after 16 years of campaigning. So you can also claim that they actually created the conditions in which, if they had a bit of luck, it would really benefit them. Uh, but they did have, of course, a bit of luck at some point. Political change in Senegal changed the game, and then the trial was possible. Yet, it's a model. It's a model that has been uh, uh, actually now copied by a number of actors, and perhaps the most important event that is happening based on the hybrid model is the Liberia campaign. Uh, so that's led by a Liberian group of victims that partnered with a Swiss NGO, Civitas Maxima, a small uh, NGO led by a former, um, I mean, a Swiss lawyer who has been working in the Syrian court in Cambodia, I mean, a serious experience at international tribunals. And they pretty much apply uh, what, what Chadians and Human Rights Watch applied uh, in the Habrian trial. So it's this partnership, it's bottom-based, it's using domestic systems that allow victims to be a force in the investigation, in triggering cases and in, um, and in court. Um, and, but interestingly, with what Civitas Maxima and its Liberian uh, partner do, they uh, they, they haven't been encouraging one-sided prosecutions, which I think is a very interesting development and a sort of a interesting aspect of how they developed the model. Um, if you look at the Liberian cases that they've been trying to push in a number of countries, they target actually opposing factions. Um, if you consider how, how um, unsuccessful a number of courts have been to be uh, to be prosecuting 
every side of a, of a conflict. In this particular case, we have a universal jurisdiction um, initiative that is much more, seems to be much more successful at not uh, promoting one-sided uh, prosecutions. The same goes with Syria, actually, where we're seeing prosecutions again against both ISIS, the Syrian army, as well as, uh, as the Free Syrian Army. So, so that's interesting to me. Uh, I guess some of you may know about what's going on with the Liberia campaign, but it's serious. It, there are too many things to say. Uh, it's interesting also because it shows that this opens the possibility to deal with crimes that were completely ignored when nothing was done. And because of time constraints and time limits, uh, other courts like the ICC cannot deal with it because it's in, it's in the 90s. And so all of a sudden, the Liberia, where, where nothing has been done on this massive violence in the 90s, it can be uh, actually activated today through this mechanism. But um, what I wanted to say is that, so we are now expecting, I think it's now about five trials are expected to take place starting this year uh, in five different European countries. That's the UK, Belgium, Switzerland, um, France, or the Netherlands. It's not clear yet. There's a case that is uh, between the two. Yeah, so it's maybe four countries. Uh, on, again, on a conflict where absolutely nothing has, has happened. Interestingly, and we also saw that a little bit in the Haber trial. The Haber trial actually triggered a national trial in, in Chad that has never happened before. Of course it has problems, but every trial has problems, including those at international tribunals. So let's not go into the quality of the process. Let's just stick to what it triggered. The Haber trial triggered the most important national trial on the Haber regime ever. The, the Liberia campaign that is based on organizing trials abroad is now putting an enormous pressure on Liberian authorities to open their own national trials. I don't know how far it's going to go, but it certainly is clear to me that it has never been as close to something that could happen. Again, I don't know, it's sensitive. Uh, the, the former warlords are still very powerful in Liberia, but the growing pressure since last August is uh, certainly unprecedented and who knows, there might be something happening. And so you could see how the dynamics here is, uh, can, be, can be really interesting. Almost, I'm almost done with what I see uh, in, in, in criminal justice, but a related one that is really uh, also interesting, some of you must have worked on it, is uh, we're seeing developing new strategies when it comes to investigating, investigating crimes, documenting them. Two things come to mind. Um, first is the new development of these triple I mechanisms you know, independent, impar impartial, uh, inter international mechanisms. We have one for Syria, we've got one in Myanmar, for Myanmar that is being set up, and there's a, 
a special kind of model, but in the same spirit for Iraq. That's interesting. Uh, so these bodies cannot prosecute, but their mandate is to gather all the evidence for trials, for the purpose of trials in the future, whenever it's possible. Of course, the development of these mechanisms is a sign of the, the, the window, as we said earlier, how the window has closed and how opportunities today to create new courts are very uh, uh, narrow. The UN Security Council is blocking everything through China, Russia, or, or both at the same time, or now the, or the US. And so you can see how creative now also activists or others can be. And so they are using the UN General Assembly now, or the UN Human Rights Council, to create bodies that are not courts, because they can't really do that, but that are still mechanisms that might help courts at the domestic level already, or in the future at some international level. So you can see how the field actually keeps being creative, and even if the environment is not as, uh, certainly not as supportive, they find ways to, uh, to keep uh, focusing on, on, uh, on justice for, for mass violations. So that's one really interesting development, and we'll see more of these mechanisms, obviously. There are several calls already for others. What are these mechanisms going to do? It's too early to say. And maybe it's just going to be another bureaucracy that doesn't need, you know, anywhere. I don't know. Uh, the first signs we're going to have uh, on how useful they can be is, uh, is probably going to be Syria. Uh, because we're going to see if the evidence that the mechanism collects can be used by domestic courts in, uh, in European countries, then we could, we could have a better understanding on how these triple uh, I mechanisms can be useful. The other thing is less on the radar for a year, but it's been very much on the radar two years ago, is the, the privatization of war crimes investigations. And the main example of this was CJA. Anyone knows this, this Commission for International Justice and Accountability, not to be confused with CJA, which is almost the same. But CJA was created by a former international lawyer, prosecutor, and defense at uh, international tribunals, Yugoslavia and Iraq in particular, Bill Wiley. And uh, it's, so it's run by war crimes lawyers and investigators, and they're basically doing the investigations as if they were working for a court, but it, there is no court, right? And so their point is, we're going we're gonna to gather all this evidence and we're going to have this evidence being collected in a very professional way as we do as lawyers as opposed to human rights organizations and activists, uh, you know, respecting the chain of custody and all this so that uh, the evidence is fully ready for future tribunals. CISA can be very impressive in what they've managed to build up as an organization I was told like a year ago or two, it was 150 staff for a budget of 8.5 million 
dollars, which at the sort of NGO level is quite significant. And they had agreements with 13 European countries in terms of how to uh, deal with the evidence uh, collected and plans to expand to Sudan at some point, they officially talked about it, and they're probably interested in other parts of the, of the world, and I think they're very much interested in Myanmar these days. They were very kind of secretly, uh, they don't disclose much of, uh, of their uh, activities. Their basic Philosophy is interesting because it's in opposition to the way international tribunals and the ICC in particular are organizing their investigation. So they're using cops, they're using police uh, trained investigators in the classic way. They also agree that investigating war crimes is risky and taking risk is part of the game. And there is nothing like more risk averse than the ICC today. And that's a problem. How do you investigate war crimes if you don't accept risks? How would you investigate the mafia if you don't take risks? They took risks. They died. They were killed. We would, act we would actually, at the time of the mafia main investigations, judges, prosecutors would be killed, murdered, and it's like, yeah. Not that we like it, but it's part of the game. You don't do this work if you don't accept this kind of risk. There's been an entire and an enormous shift at the international level in how we understand war crimes investigations, and CISA has basically gone back to basics by saying risks are part of the game. Um, so, now the problem is that who gave them a mandate? So there are lots of many questions about CISA that I don't think have been raised properly by the media. Uh, there's a huge profile of CISA in the New Yorker, which is a great magazine that I love, that I think totally failed at questioning CISA and how it's, uh, the, the problems that it raised. Who gave them a mandate? Um, who supports them? Can there be Western powers involved in the war actually in Syria that actually are financing Syria? I'm not sure, it's unclear. Um, who do they target? They started by targeting uh, only the Syrian regime. How problematic is going to be in court? Defense lawyers are going to say, well, excuse me, but this organization has, made, has a, had an agenda from the start. Of course, realizing this seizure started to investigate ISIS, I'm not sure that they ever investigated with the Free Syrian Army, uh, but that's part of the problem of this privatization. It raises issues that might actually uh, make a case collapse in court. How are they going to transfer the evidence <coughs> that they've got? It's also pretty unclear to me at this point under what conditions what are going to be the rules of disclosure, um, and how CIGA is going to run its own business, because it's a business. Uh, if it, um, their treasure is this evidence, how are they going to market it? I don't know. And I don't think it's very clear at this point 
who has been able to access seizure evidence and who has been able to use it and how. It's interesting what they're doing. I'm not saying they're you know, not interesting, but I think they're, we still don't know exactly what this kind of model can do and how it can really work eventually. But it's creative. It's creative and it was an interesting response to a total lack of investigation in the Syria case in particular. Okay, so that was about what we're seeing happening at the investigation level. Ivo, you tell me if, I'm, if I should rush and go on. Quick words, TRC, the, the truth commissions, keep being popular. I don't think it ever stopped. For 25 years they've been, at least, or more actually, they've been popular since the end. I mean, they started in the 80s, but they really became popular probably in the 90s. They've remained so, and still today there are some really interesting uh, processes. In Tunisia, it's the very end of, I mean, it's the end of the commission part. It's not the end of the process, because now it goes to trials. Uh, but Tunisia has now gone through four years of uh, truth commission, massive undertaking, Problematic, controversial, like any of them. Again, I'm not dealing with uh, qualifying them here. Uh, Gambia has started last week its public hearings. Mali has one. We're still wondering exactly what they're up to, they've got, but they've gathered 10,000 statements so far, so it's there, it's happening. Uh, in a difficult environment. Of course, Colombia has one, and Indonesia is also uh, back in business with a truth commission in Aceh, in the region of Aceh. I'm saying this because if anyone wants to write about it, I'd be very happy and interested. Because that's happening now. I think there is very little literature on it, and it's potentially very uh, interesting. So TRCs keep being popular. Now, there are other things that are, I think, growingly exciting, at least to me. It's completely personal, I guess. But environment, environmental crimes, considering them as mass violations, right? At the level of what transitional justice usually deals with. This is a hugely interesting, very creative, very undefined field of work where obviously there's going to be more and more happening. There's no doubt about it in my mind. It's already happening. Uh, but I think there will be much more. And uh, yeah, I find it intellectually and, and in terms of relevance to what's going on, in, in many societies, it's, uh, it's incredibly uh, interesting. I mean, at certainly, I want, at the newspaper, I want this to, to be monitored as much as possible. It's sometimes complicated to, to define what kind of environmental crimes fall into our field of work and jurisdiction. It can't be like any uh, Crime. So that's a bit difficult sometimes to understand. Okay, what is this? What is the environmental crime story that actually is part of transitional justice, and what is not? Um, but there are some uh, really interesting things uh, happening in that field that 
probably more and more people are going to work. It also, it's also interesting because uh, it weakens the link between mass violence and war. With environment, we don't, we don't need conflicts anymore at all. And it affects the global south pretty much as much as the global north. So I think that is going to also change the, the dynamics in the field and the, the sort of uh, Western liberal-led uh, philosophy or dominance would probably would be weakened when it comes to environmental crimes and I think probably for the better. Um, another thing that I'm not going to develop, but corporate crimes, it's not new, it's slow. We were probably hoping 20 years ago that we'd go much faster, that we would have much more to deal with today. International courts, hybrid courts have been useless at going after money trade, uh, uh, the, the financiers behind crimes. But it's, so it's happening at the domestic level entirely. But I also expect this to develop. There's no way uh, that the public opinion is gradually uh, uh, putting pressure, and we now have cases actually of significant dimension, one of them that, uh, that is just started, so it's probably going to take 10 years, against uh, a major French company, Lafarge, in Syria. Typically the kind of cases that I think we'll probably uh, we'll see more of them. <coughs> There's another point that I wanted to, to say, and it's probably the, the one before the last, is and when I told Svetlana yesterday, she was a bit surprised, so maybe it's my own perception. But still, I'm going to make my case. Uh, it's reparations. In my mind, or for, from what I have seen, uh, major actors in the field, and I mean governments, that means donors, uh, courts, and major human rights organizations have not been interested in reparations uh, much in the past 20 years. For a number of reasons, I think, but they were not... Uh, I think reparations was dismissed or disregarded or neglected a lot uh, if you take the last 25 years when um, transitional justice developed. And it's no longer the case. And that to me is really interesting, but I can see how reparations is becoming sexy to talk in, uh, to speak in sort of, uh, you know, uh, trivial language. Governments are beginning to be interested in contributing to reparations schemes or programs where they were not before. Courts seem to also gradually find uh, some interest into it. In fact, when it comes to reparations linked to courts, the ICC is going to be an incredibly interesting model to watch and look at. Today they are starting their reparation program in Central African Republic. To be honest, given how the court works, you can expect the worst. But they are implementing a concept that's, that is growingly uh, attracting support, which is to separate judicial outcome and reparations. And 
the ICC has that model that allows it. So in that particular case, Bemba, the former Congolese um, uh, rebel group leader and politician who was tried and eventually acquitted. So technically, in many other cases, there would not be any reparations because he was acquitted. And here, the, the ICC has an assistance program that allows to actually give reparations whatever the result of the case. So they are starting it, and because they have to redeem themselves in Central African Republic, it also, you know, they are pushing for the reparation program now because the image of the court in Central African Republic is extremely poor after the acquittal of, uh, of Memba. Yet, that is interesting because the concept of separating reparations and uh, judicial outcome uh, is also being promoted, promoted and defended by other major experts in the field. And so in that case, in that sense, I think the ICC is going to be interesting to monitor. Anyway, all what I wanted to say is that so to my surprise, reparations seem to be on the rise. And that's interesting because whoever has worked in the field in that, in that um, when it comes to mass violence, will know that reparations is central to what victims understand as part of what they want. And sometimes it's like this crucial thing. More important than punishment, more important than many other things. Um, so the fact that reparations becomes more considered is probably also uh, a positive development when it comes to what victims' interests are about. So that's all I wanted to say. There are other things that are really interesting being done. I'm thinking, and that's my last comment, about this, and you have Lee Payne here is very involved in that last thing, is how transitional justice can be used and useful, all these tools, all these experiences that have been uh, uh, developed over 25 or 30 years, how can they be interesting to deal with the most violent groups today? And that's, for instance, uh, jihadist movements or gangs. So the most violent and the most reviled groups that nobody really wants to deal with in a sort of uh, transactional way. How transitional justice can be actually useful in negotiating with the most violent groups today. Some people are working in this and I think what they are doing is extremely interesting and Lee Payne is part of that. Um, and that's to just give you one uh, organization that is heavily involved in this, that's the IFID, Institute for Integrated Transitions, which is Barcelona-based and led by a former ICTJ guy, Mark Freeman. If you want to follow what they're doing, I think they are very um, on the edge of things and what they are thinking, what they are developing is extremely interesting and challenging um, in the field. I think that's all the comments I had to share about what's, what I see happening. I'm totally happy to give a few words on, on writing on it and more journalistic views, but it's entirely up to you. Either I say a few things as a writer, it would be short, 
or we just open the conversation uh, right now. Are there any burning questions at this stage? I have many myself. And we're going to continue with a workshop at 3 o'clock as well, where you can um, elaborate more extensively on your, on your writing experience. But mm -hmm. seeing that people are still warming up, maybe you can just say a couple of words about trends, promises, and disappointments from, from the writer's perspective as well. Oh. Before we Okay, I guess it was very general. <laughs> <laughs> yourself to okay, we'll see how it how it addresses that uh, angle. Um, anyway, just a couple of remarks I wanted to say. First, to me, it's very important as much as possible to arrive early in the process. It's complicated to catch up with a particular story. Uh, so if you have a chance to arrive at an early stage, I think it's crucial. I think it's essential. We cannot always be lucky enough, but if you, if you can, just be sensitive to that. When it comes to a court in particular, I think it's, it's incredibly, the two first years are so important to understand the, the court, and plus they're the most exciting years of the process. People have to prove themselves, the court has to prove itself, they're motivated, it's very chaotic, so you can work well, because you have access. They're not yet an organized bureaucracy. You have access to sources in a way that is just uncomparable. Uh, so I think that's always what I've tried to, when, once I understood that, I've always tried to be there at the beginning. You can live later, you cannot always stay 15 years on the same story, but um, if you're there at the beginning, it's a, it's, it's incredibly uh, relevant and plus you work much better. Now, uh, for a reporter or for a writer, I think trials, I've tried to understand why trials can be so interesting or why, why should I keep doing this when it's in terms of mental health, I don't think it's good. <laughs> and I actually don't advise anyone to stick to this uh, reporting for too long. But, um, but what happens is that trials offer an incredibly unique and an incredible opportunity to, to embrace a history that is, uh, that is overwhelming and that is actually impossible to embrace. It's usually not your history. It's not a society that is yours. You will never really, really understand it in a, in, a, in a deep way. And it's just unmanageable because it's of mass scale. And suddenly a trial is, um, because it deals with an individual case, and because it takes place in this closed uh, uh, theater, it makes the enterprise of writing much easier. And it allows basically to grasp uh, an out-of-scale tragedy through the apparently more accessible life of a single person. I think that explains also why the writing can be so uh, attractive and so powerful when you, when you cover a trial on mass murder. The unity of space, of course, helps a lot. Uh, and there is also a clear frame, which is usually the indictment, and there is a central character, which is the accused. 
So you, you find back some of the key elements of theater, which are always uh, extremely useful for a writer. Then, of course, they provide an incredible, remarkable range of characters. It's, uh, you know, it's just boundless. You, you will find everything you need uh, as a writer. You have witnesses and perpetrators, passionate lawyers and, and opportunists, uh, farmers and high politicians, businessmen and human rights idealists, or activists, career-driven bureaucrats. Everything is there. It's incredibly rich. You can also deal with it from, and that you know, from a, a variety of angles. So when you're a bit tired of a particular angle, you just switch to the other, which have, I have done. Like, you know, at some point, the legal part of it just bored me. So I would sort of pay more attention to the psychological part, or the social part, or the his historical part, or the philosophical uh, dimension of the process. There is always uh, an interesting angle to, uh, to use. Um, and so all this makes it incredibly rich territory for a writer. Plus, of course, and that's evident, drama is inherent to, uh, to the event. You know, it involves many victims and someone's individual life is basically in the balance. Uh, so, you don't need to create drama, it's there. Reminds me of a lawyer at the Ronda Tribunal who once went back to his bar in Paris and a colleague of his said, hey, I have an interesting case, double murder. Double murder. And he was the, he was the defense lawyer of Bagosora, the main suspect for the Rwanda genocide. And so he looked and said, I have a million. Okay, it's a bit of a silly, you know, comment, but it tells you, I think it tells you what kind of stories you have. Like, it's incredible human drama that is, that is offered. So, I think there are stories of incredibly rare depth. Uh, as long as you're ready to deal with the boredom, the mediocrity, there's a lot of it, and the disillusions that come with uh, such processes. Again, I would not advise you to stay too long in the business. It's not very good for your soul. Uh, it doesn't fill you with beauty. But it's incredibly enrich uh, it's enriching you as well, uh, tremendously. I think these are the thoughts I could share before, we, uh, before you ask me anything. As you can tell, it was very informal. I even 